Good afternoon. Welcome to Plymouth United Church of Christ and uh, uh, what is sure to be a very impressive and informative, wonderful lecture by Eliezer Fernandez, who is our special guest here this afternoon. So thank you for uh, thank you for being here. Uh, format is going to give a lecture for a while or talk, uh, and then we'll have some time for questions and answers after that. Uh, do you want to introduce him first? Well, I'll introduce uh, first myself. I'm Pastor David, since not all of you know who I am. I'm the pastor here at Plymouth UCC, and uh, I want to say a special thanks to uh, Mike and uh, Joy and Derek and George, who helped kind of arrange this whole day. We had a wonderful worship service this morning with uh, Eliezer preaching, and then had a, a most wonderful lunch of incredible Filipino food. So thank you for all who cooked and made our lunch today. And now it is my pleasure to introduce you our uh, our speaker. Uh, I'm going to give uh, some introduction to let you know who he is. Uh, he was born in the Philippines, in the city of Leyte. Uh, and I don't know, is that main island, Philippines, or, one of or the would many, we not know? One right. of the many islands. One of the many, all right. <laughs> Small island. <laughs> yeah, I know there's an awful lot of islands down there. 7,000 uh, islands. Okay. Uh, earned his Bachelor of Arts from the Philippine Christian University and his Master of Divinity from Union Theological Seminary in the Philippines. Uh, and then uh, went back to Leyte and served as a pastor for 10 years and then uh, came to the U.S. Uh, to, to study some more. Earned his Master of Theology degree at Princeton Theological Seminary and a Ph.D. in Philosophical and Systematic Theology from Vanderbilt University in 1993. Uh, currently... Uh, serving as professor of constructive theology at United Theological Seminary up in the Twin Cities. That's one of the seminaries of the United Church of Christ. Uh, and uh, is also taught at uh, some other places, Pacific School of Religion and Drew University, and also in Myanmar, Cameroon, and the Philippines. Uh, is active in the United Church of Christ in the USA. He was on the board of directors of the Global Missions Board uh, that we have with the Disciples of Christ and is a member of the Interfaith Relations Commission of the National Council of Churches of the United States of America. Uh, and he and his wife, Josephine, live in Fridley, Minnesota, and have two daughters, Zareen, who's at Harvard, and Joelle, who's a student at the University of Minnesota. And I, uh, Joelle and Josephine are both here, so welcome to you as well. Uh, Eliezer has written a number of books including Burning Center, Porous Borders, The Church in a Globalized World, Reimagining the Human Theological Anthropology in Response to Systemic Evil, Realizing the America of Our Hearts, Theological Voices of Asian Americans, uh, A Dream Unfinished, Theological Reflections on America from the Margins and Toward a Theology of Struggle. Uh, and has also done some other projects uh, in his areas of teaching and research, include Constructive Theology, Christian Political Ethics, Pastoral Leadership and Ministry, Changing Face of Christianity in North America, and Challenges to Ministry, Ecclesiology and Mission, and Globalization in the Church, Global Christianities, Theologies of Religion and Interfaith Dialogue, uh, and uh, many others, including uh, wrestling with the problem of suffering and evil, uh, which I think is on our minds and hearts uh, quite a bit in this past weekend. Uh, so I... With all of that said, I introduce uh, Eliezer Fernandez. Thank you for being with us today, and welcome, and look forward to your lecture. Thank you.
thank you all for coming. So this is advertisement. Uh, this is the book, uh, Burning Center, Force Borders, uh, my latest uh, uh, book. Um, and you can buy this one, $37, or you can also buy it through uh, the publisher, Whip and Stock. You can go to Amazon, it's there. You can also go to Coxbury Bookstore and buy. So let me know or the cyberspace is there for you to do it too. Thank you for that uh, great introduction. Uh, I'm going to share with you about this challenge of religious fundamentalism, uh, something that I have uh, taught and learned and still continue to learn, uh, especially as a member of the Interfaith Relations Commission of the National Council of Churches and also learning more and more, especially when I took people to students and others to Israel-Palestine, Palestine-Israel, I invert the order, uh, Palestine uh, this past two weeks. So if you'd like to go with me again for another trip, immersion trip to Palestine-Israel, uh, let me know. I, I'm planning to organize one for 1914. But next year, I'll take a group to the Philippines. So anybody interested to go uh, see the Philippines and learn about uh, the church and social issues, uh, let's do it next June 2013. Okay. I'll talk about uh, religious fundamentalism. And religion must be understood as part of the whole socio-political economic uh, fabric. Uh, so here you have politics, you have economics, ecology, culture, and religion. Uh, we oftentimes talk about religious wars or conflicts. My purpose here is to simply is simply to underscore the centrality of religion in a conflict. Most often, people don't fight simply for religious reasons, okay? So we always say, oh, uh, that's a religious conflict. And yet, in this society, we want to privatize religion, that religion is a private thing. If religion is a private thing, how can it be blamed for all the troubles in the world? So I think, I think it's not fair to blame religion for all the conflict. Uh, even what is called religious conflict are not purely religious. They are a part of the whole socio-economic political situation. Sometimes it plays a central role. Other times it's co-opted for other ethnic, uh, political, economic reasons. But the most important point here is that religion is part of the whole uh, mixed. Okay. So think about the word oikomene from the household. Oikomene. Ecology. See, the word ecology is derived from that Greek word oikomene, the whole inhabited world, household. This is how I understand it. Ecology, using the oikomene root, is the structure of the household. So we are using the metaphor of the household in terms of the whole inhabited world. And then economics. If it is a household, what is economics? 
It's the table manners of the household. This is so basic, elementary. Economics is the table manners of the household. What is politics? Politics is not just simply Republican or Democrat. Politics for me is the dynamics of power relation within that household. So basic. And culture, the worldview of the household. Okay. So you have culture, religion, politics, ecology, economics. Uh, in my most recent writings, even when I talk about justice, I, use, I start with ecology, which, the, which is the structure of the household. I find it very useful in speaking about social justice using the structure of ecology, the structure of the household. Because when I speak about justice, I'm speaking in general about uh, right relation, right relation within the household. And it's not just simply right relation among human beings, but right relation within the whole members of the whole household, right relation. So for me, I even interpret sin, for example, as violation of right relation. And well-being is right relation, justice is right relation within the household. And it's, so it's cosmological, it's ecological, because right relation happen, happens among beings, various beings. Religion provides the worldview of the household in which people dwell and defines the ethos, ways of relate, relating and behaving within a social order. Religion provides vision and energy. Vision of a certain kind of world, vision of a way of living and behaving, and also energy to pursue with passion one's vision or deep convictions. And religious concerns, when we include religion within that phenomenon, what makes, what's the difference between philosophy and theology? When philosophy and theology, for example, uh, all almost deal with similar concerns. But one of the differences is that religion brings that dimension of what we call ultimate concern. It's uh, ultimate allegiance. And it asks questions called limit questions about uh, uh, about uh, the end of life, about the purpose. When I say end, I'm not just thinking about the finishing line, but end in terms of telos, or purpose, okay? purpose of life. So religion gives the sense of ultimacy to one's commitment. That's why in religion we speak about penultimate and ultimate concerns. Okay? The ultimate concerns uh, in which one is willing to give oneself for that which you truly care about, and it matters. So, but there is here the danger, uh, the so-called ultimate securer. The danger is uh, when we confuse mundane goods with the status of eternal securers. For me, the main problem of society is not atheism. We oftentimes say that, oh, it's atheism, 
and when you say atheism, it's communism, right? Atheist, communist, and so forth. But for me, the main problem is not atheism. The main problem is idolatry. It doesn't matter what kind of ideology do you have, capitalist, socialist, whatever. It's idolatry. It's giving mundane goods the status of eternal security. Mundane goods. Mundane goods are good. They are essential to life. Money. Various forms of wealth and resources. They are good. But once we invest them with the status of eternal security, that's another matter. Security is something we strive for. Financial security and sometimes security for our own dwelling place. But when we invest armaments, and money and wealth, when we give them the status of eternal securers, then this becomes uh, idols. Being part of a nation is good. To have national identity, to have a place, to have all this protection that we have, to being part of a nation state. But nation state can be idolatrous. And that's one of the greatest danger here especially in the United States of America, uh, when uh, a nation becomes uh, uh, an idol. And as one theologian said, the most fanatical and cruelest political struggles are those that have been colored, inspired, and legitimized by religion. Why? Because religion gives that ultimate dimension, ultimate concern. Uh, it gives the passion, the energy, and the vision of a new society, a new tomorrow. And when you have that passion, when you have that strong conviction, uh, then if it is used for a wrong purpose, it's done also passionately. Modernity and enlightenment uh, became a challenge to the religious house of authority. Uh, broadly speaking, there was this challenge of enlightenment and uh, the challenge of modernity to the house of authority when religion was the supreme arbiter uh, of society. And then uh, modernity came and enlightenment and it was, in one aspect, a challenge to the religious house of authority heteronomous power controlled by the church, religious establishment, uh, even in matters that we call uh, about science. According to many writers, uh, modern writers, and uh, the issue of secularism is that religion would wither away once reason replaced the infantile religious supernaturalism of the common people. And that was uh, proclaimed by many uh, of these uh, writers. Religion as human, human projection by Feuerbach. Uh, religion as opium of the people. Uh, of course, there's a different interpretation to that. And we can in, uh, engage in conversation later on. Religion as a form of immaturity. The idea here, according to modern enlightenment theories, is that once people will get more and more educated, then they will uh, realize that this religion 
if an infantile uh, stage later on they will become more aware and then they will not be beholden to this religious uh, worldview. They will realize that it's a human projection, opium of the people, immaturity, and so people will not be, will be living in a more secular society. So, uh, look at Europe, for example. The uh, idea of secularization, uh, which is much more prevalent in Europe, even in heavily Catholic Italy, fewer than 3 in 10 or 27 percent people say religion is very important personally. A lack of intensity in belief that is consistent with opinion in other Western European nations. Okay. So secularization. Uh, six in ten or 59 people in the U.S. say religion plays a very important role in their life. Very much different from Europe. Uh, when you go to those places, uh, churches, uh, very few or go to church. There's a church still, it's supported by the government, but only a few people go to church. But it's quite different here in the U.S., even as we say that mainline Protestant churches are uh, shrinking. Uh, but still, people here in the United States uh, go to church. People here still say, many say that they are members of the church, they are religious in spite of the fact that people say, oh, uh, I am a spiritual but not religious. But when you ask people, when you do surveys, people still say that uh, they believe in God. Uh, so a higher percentage compared to Europe. This is roughly twice the per percentage of self-avowed religious people in Canada, and even higher proportion when compared with Japan and Western Europe. So you can see here Americans' views Americans' views are closer to people in developing nations than to the publics of developed nations when it comes to uh, the value of religion in society. So, while others say that uh, secularism will be the end of religion, the demise of religion, what we are experiencing now is the resurgence of religion and the rise of religious fundamentalism. So you have the secularist threats vis-a-vis -vis the resurgence and reassertion of religion. Religion remains strong in the global south and in the United States. Even as uh, 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 many uh, Christian churches in Europe, for example, a lot of the Christians don't go to church, but still very much strong in the global south and in the United States. And Christianity and Islam are contesting for dominance in Africa. So even as we say that the churches, uh, that Christianity is uh, uh, shrinking, it's growing so fast, maybe not in Western Europe, uh, and maybe not in the U.S., but in the global south. And the center of Christian vitality has shifted to the global south. Even as we say that the center of finances uh, is still here, but the center of Christian vitality has shifted to the global south. And the largest center of missionary is not the United States anymore. You guess what? What country? South Korea. South Korea. Uh, but the main religious perspective comes from the global north. Okay? 
And this is still true. U.S. is the main exporter of a certain kind of Christianity. We are the exporter of various denominations. You cannot find any other country in the world that exports various kinds of denominational mess. It's the United States of America. Lots of denominations here. Mass production of denominations. That's one of our exports, main export. Christianity and denominationalism in other parts. And one particularly is fundamentalist Christianity. Where can you find a country that exports Christianity, fundamentalist Christianity? United States of America. That's one of our exports to other parts of the world. So, there are common markers, common markers of fundamentalism. And let me test this one in terms of your own experience. Reactivity to perceived threats and marginalization of religion. Oftentimes we think about fundamentalism as uh, a way of thinking before liberalism. In theology, for example, we speak, we think about, oh, liberal theology came, or fundamentalist theology was there first, and then came um, liberal theology. It's the other way around. Modernity and liberal theology, enlightenment and liberal theology came. And what happens is when you have liberalism, when you have liberal ideas, when you have enlightenment, when there is this critique, uh, assault against the so-called dominant house of authority, and uh, then you have a reaction. So fundamentalism is basically a modern phenomenon here, uh, in the kind of fundamentalism that we know, not that there were no fundamentalists uh, or closer to fundamentalist understanding in the past. But when we speak about fundamentalism here, I mean it in the sense of a modern phenomenon. A modern phenomenon, it's a reaction. So basically, uh, common markers, reactivity to perceived threats and marginalization of religion, purity, moral manichaeism, absolutism and inerrancy, the fourth is Melianism and Messianism. Okay, let me explain it. <coughs> Reactivity to secularism and public marginalization of religion. Um, uh, fundamentalism is basically a reaction. It's not a, a phenomenon that is creative. It's a phenomenon that is reactive. It's a reaction too. It's a defense of religion. Uh, without it, a movement may not be labeled fundamentalist. So defense of religious fundamentalism is a reaction in particular against uh, sec secularizing trends, secular society, and also the public marginalization of religion. When you feel that religion is being marginalized, when it's no longer uh, the center of society, the norm, the arbiter, uh, then you have the reaction, reaction from the religious establishment. Imagine people uh, lament today that, oh, 
In the past, we had theologians who became public figures. Their faces, for example, like uh, Paul Tillich, Reinhold Niebuhr, they were in the Times Magazine. Uh, it's hard to find a theologian now occupying that space in the public discourse in terms of that popularity. Because at that time, religion was the center of public discourse. And maybe you can even remember at one point in your life when uh, those were older that the church was the only game in town, right? And now you have lots of games during Sunday mornings to compete with the church. There's a lot of competition, but here it's a reaction against the secularizing and public marginalization of religion. So fundamentalism is basically a reactive force, reaction to perceived threats of modernity, of enlightenment, of secularism, and also of globalization. Now, globalization. We think that globalization, for example, is homogenizing. It will homogenize. All airports are the same. Walmart will be there. Uh, American culture will be there. Hollywood culture will occupy the space. There's not much difference when you go from one place to another. That's true. But when you have homogenization, you also have reaction. So there's a reaction to globalization. Modes of reaction from perceived threats. You seek control of the state to re-secularize or de-secularize it. So to re-secularize the state that has been secular. That's uh, one of the aims of fundamentalist movements. They say that our society, especially the government, for example, the state has become uh, secular. So we need to fight back. It's not just mere conservatism. Uh, uh, fundamentalist is not simply a con just a conservative. Uh, a lot of people are conservative in terms of conserving the past. But fundamentalists uh, do more than that. They fight back. They fought back in relation to lost grounds or territories. So there is the reaction, fighting back, to seek control of the state, to resecularize or to desecularize it. So reaction to perceived threats. What is the target? Secular education. Right? Secular education is the target. Divorce is the target, see, because it's the demise of the, the, the values in which uh, these groups uh, uh, legalized abortion. You can recognize those kinds of issues. Gay marriages, right? And empowerment of women. That's uh, empowerment of women. That's part of the, the, one of the issues in which uh, fundamentalism is reacting. So one is offensive reaction. Here is the so-called uh, mixture of ethno-religious preemptive, uh, using the language of preemptive. There's also preemptive strike here, not just uh, the war on terror, but uh, preemptive here. The ethno-religious dimension, uh, syncretistic form of uh, fundamentalism, which is uh, not just simply religious, but also it becomes nativistic, ethnic claim. 
may seek to limit, suppress, expel other ethno-religious grouping. Ethno, for example, you think about uh, uh, India, for example, when you have people coming like from Bangladesh and Muslims, then you have reaction from Hindu. And actually, others would say that it's not religious fundamentalism as such, but it's more about ethnos or the ethnic, uh, and then using religious dimensions. So it's more ethno-religious. Uh, but uh, you have uh, the action here is preemptive. You have to limit, suppress, and expel other religious groups. You have reaction. So you have reaction from the Hindu community. And we say that Hindus are basically tolerant, but uh, it only comes to a certain point. Even liberal tolerism is tolerant only at a certain point. Uh, tolerance means that you are in control still of the situation. But toleration has its own limit. It reaches its own limit when there's the threat is perceived. So that, for example, for me, the issue of immigration is not just economics. The issue of immigration is also about identity of this nation. And it's very threatening when you present the changing color of the United States of America and what immigration does and what would that mean to us as a nation. So immigration is not just about uh, economics or jobs. It's also about the ethnic identity of this nation. There's also this defensive reaction to survive in the face of majority preemptive ethno-religious movement. Survival here. If you are a minority, then fundamentalism assumes a different posture. For example, if you are a Christian in South India, like in Kerala, majority are Christians, but you are surrounded by Hindus, then the Reaction there is more in terms of preserving, holding to what you value so that it will not be diluted from the outside world. If you are the majority, then you do preemptive to suppress. If you are the minority, you contain, you make sure that you, you are uh, insulated from the wider world. Then there's also this uh, purity or moral manichaeanism. The outside world is contaminated sinful, doomed, the world inside is pure, and redeemed, remnant. You have this. Uh, you can see this in fundamentalist uh, movements. You will not be considered the fundamentalist if you don't have this kind of mentality. So there is this, uh, the outside world is contaminated. So if I use my so-called postmodern critique, uh, fundamentalists would react because I say that in, in postmodern critique, uh, everything is contamination. <laughs> you are born in the messy middle. Everything is contamination, contaminated. <laughs> Fundamentalists would say, no, we are pure, and the world out there is contaminated. We want to make sure that we maintain this purity against the contamination of the world. And there's this remnant. The sinful world outside may be graded in degrees of contamination. See, degrees of contamination. Think about this, even not just among Christians, but you can also maybe find equivalences within the Christian fundamentalist group. So, uh, 
we may think about Muslims in general as one Muslim world. Why, should, why is it that Muslims uh, would not unite as Muslims? Well, of course, there are many divisions within the Muslim communities, and uh, the Shiite is one uh, of this uh, group. And you have the secularized Shiite Muslim, and outside of the ring is the Sunni Muslim, and outside of that is the infidel Satan's great and small. Right? But here is the pure. You will see that one later on. So if you have that uh, purity and graded purity and outside impure, then you have to clean because uh, you have to make sure that you maintain the purity of the group. And heresy, heresy is a function of that group in terms of uh, identifying who is clean and who is out. It's a purging. Okay? So who are the heretics? It's one way to clean uh, the, your own group by having heresy triumph. Then you have also absolutism and inerrancy. The Torah, the Talmud, the Quran, the Bible are of divine origin and accurate in all particulars. And uh, this is the challenge here. Uh, one time I was looking for a job. And when you look for a job, especially in churches and in religion, and in particular in churches, it doesn't really matter how many PhDs you have. It's the community that hires you, and they are the ones who determine what's the right theology. <laughs> it's not you. But I needed a job. So I said, I want a job. <laughs> so one time I was interviewed. You know, we were interviewed in a church. And when these people interview, the interview is not really a question about, what do you think about this? It's not, they are not asking questions because they want to know. But they are asking questions because they want to test if your ideas are in accord with their own thinking. That's the main thing when you are interviewed. It's not uh, asking questions for the sake of clarifying something. The first question was, uh, this happened in Chicago, Presbyterian Church. I was looking for a job after PhD studies. Uh, do you believe that the Bible is, verbally, is, is the word of God? And I said, I need a job. <laughs> How would I answer this one? See? <laughs> How would I answer this question? I need a job. <laughs> I said, yes, I believe that the Bible is the word of God. Even though in my mind, I also thought that, well, yes, the Bible is the word of God. But the word of God is more than the Bible. But since they did not ask for that, why should I volunteer to say if you don't ask, don't tell. <laughs> so don't expose a lot when you are not asked. Just answer the question. And for me, I can answer that with integrity because I say, yes, the Bible is the word of God. But I know deep inside that the word of God is more than the Bible. So yes. But the next question was kind of difficult, much more difficult. Do you believe that the Bible is verbally inspired word for word? Uh, that's something I cannot say. I said, I still need a job. How would I answer this question? <laughs> and still, the list. I did not get the job. <laughs> Maybe I didn't answer it correctly. <laughs> I said, if I answer yes, you will call me conservative. If I answer no, you call me liberal. 
If you give me one semester, then maybe I can answer and explain it to you what this means. The bottom line is I didn't get the job, so I don't know what happened. But uh, it's so hard for me to answer it yes, because um, I don't believe that the Bible is uh, verbally written by God. For me, uh, that is idolatrous. It's like uh, uh, equating the so-called human instrument with uh, infallibility. And I think it violates even God's intention when you make use of a human instrument and equate it with the divine. So I'll explain more about that later on, but that's a problem with the so-called fundamentalism. Fundamentalist reading of sacred texts oppose hermeneutical methods developed by secularized philosophers or critics. Hermeneutics, uh, don't get intimidated with that word, it's very simple from the Greek myth Hermes, the translator of the confused uh, deliberation in Mount Olympus to the people, to others. So hermeneutics is the science of interpretation, basically. And uh, they are opposed to this kind of method uh, uh, by secularized philosophers or critics. And if you also, the fundamentalist view of the Bible and uh, Muslims' understanding of Quran is a little bit uh, closer because even an English translation of the Quran is not Quran. It's translation of the Quran. Quran as Quran should be in Arabic, not in English. And the other one is millennialism and messianism. History has a miraculous culmination in the end time preceded by trials and tribulations the remnants will be victorious. Okay. So, and there is one that I can include. One is also called selectivity. They are very selective. They are modernist when it comes to using modern technology, but it's also selective in terms of issues that they respond. For example, how can one be pro-life and yet support various wars around the world. It's very selective. How can we be pro-life and not pro-ecology? Those kinds of things. So it's very selective in terms of the choice of uh, topics. With fundamentalist groups seeing the world as a battlefield between good and evil, the surrounding environment as a threat to their purity, and various groups as enemies that must be stopped at all costs, fundamentalism may slide into the slippery slope of violent extremism. So it's not uh, necessary that fundamentalism is violent. It does not necessarily follow, but fundamentalism can easily slide into the slippery slope of violent extremism in defense of their understanding, their values, and maintaining purity and stopping at all costs. See, you can, for example, imagine how many abortion doctors, for example, have been killed. They even follow these doctors in Canada, even if they cross the border. They're killed in Canada and other places. Why? Because you killed a child, and therefore you must also be, be killed uh, because you're a murderer. So, 
You have here, for example, Islamic militants against West toxification. Uh, this is the main enemy here, West toxification. First, target the near enemy. We think about terrorism as terrorizing other parts of the world. The main victims of terrorism are not the people of the United States of America. Are you not aware of that? Their very own kind, people there, Muslims themselves. The first target was actually the near enemy, Muslim leaders who are more open to westernization and imperialist western power, what are called West toxification. Who killed uh, Anwar Sadat? Who killed Indira Gandhi? Who killed Mahatma Gandhi? Who killed Yitzhak Rabin? They are called near enemy. When you, when you collude with Western powers. You know. Then, later on, they decided to target the far enemy. The West, particularly the United States, the primary underwriter of predatory global capitalism, and modernist decadent secularism. Yes, yes. Modernist decadent Hollywood culture kind of. Uh, then you have in Judaism also the Gas Imunin, religious fundamentalist Jewish Zionist. Zionists, European Zionists, were secular. Secular Zionists. Um, partition in 1947. Uh, to have this uh, space for Israel, but then came this group, the Black of the Faithful, that uh, gained power and introduced the religious dimension to uh, the secular Zionist uh, control of Israel. So, fundamentalist Christians, for example, who are the enemies of fundamentalist Christians? Anti-legalized abortion, killings of physicians who perform abortion. Abortion is legalized murder, an abomination to God and must be stopped at all costs. It's also anti-Islam, isn't it? Yeah, anti-Islam. The demonization of the Islamic faith, fundamentalist uh, Christians uh, does. Evangelical chaplains in the U.S. Army inspired their troops by invoking God's wrath to their enemies that will happen in the Gulf War, 1991. And it's also anti-feminist. Fundamentalism is primarily radical patriarchalism. And anti-feminist, it is a protest movement against universalist trend in the globalizing world market where women as consumers and wage earners are becoming more and more equal with men. You can find this also in other places like Bangladesh, uh, when women were inspired and uh, got some funding to develop their own uh, uh, livelihood and resistance from uh, uh, Muslims, uh, men. And you have this anti-communist, isn't it? Christians are the best foes of communism. Therefore, evangelism helps create a bulwark against communism. The protestation, the protestant a vast portions of the third world in recent decades is intimately tied to the Cold War orientation of U.S. foreign policy. 
In the Philippines, you have spiritual warfare and geopolitics uh, campaign, hearts and soul, and the church is very much involved, uh, conservative churches, uh, working with uh, uh, agents of the United States uh, government on the war on terror. The total war at the grassroots includes uh, uh, the influx of fundamentalist uh, groups in the Philippines. And vigilante groups, military, and value formation programs, they are very much active there using that, the church. You also have Christian Zionism, a belief among Christians that the return of the Jews to the Holy Land and the establishment of the State of Israel in 1948 is in accordance with biblical prophecy. And Zionist, Christian Zionist, believes that the ingathering of Jews in Israel is a prerequisite to the second coming of Jesus. See? And so you have uh, the State of Israel, especially the Israel Lobby Group, working with Christian Zionists here, uh, even though they have different uh, intentions, but they have something in common. Uh, uh, liberals who criticize uh, Israel are often charged of being anti-Semitic, but this one is more anti-Semitic. Christian Zionists uh, are anti-Semitic in the sense that uh, they want the second coming to happen and the destruction of Israel so that it hastens the coming of the kingdom of God. But of course, Israel's policies would be willing to work with this in order to gain support from the, from the Christian right, fundamentalist right. So, when you have religious fundamentalism, you have jihad versus Macworld, and you have a class of fundamentalisms. You've heard of this uh, uh, guy, Samuel Huntington. He speaks about the class of civilization. Uh, but even uh, people in uh, Ayatollah in uh, Iran uh, talks about not the class of civilization, but the encounter or dialogue of civilization. But uh, what is happening, according to some, is not really a class of civilization. Because if these are civilizations, they should dialogue and engage. What is classing is actually fundamentalism. Religious fundamentalism, market fundamentalism. And so, what is happening here is that hearts constrict, moral imagination shrinks, wall, walls rise, whole society a fair game, War abroad and civil rights at home suffer. For the enemy is also within, so there's a shift from deterrence to security. Hearts constrict when you have uh, uh, the class of fundamentalism. Walls rise. And uh, when there's war abroad, remember, civil rights at home is affected. Much more so in this understanding now of security security, police, state. The enemy is not just out there. Okay? When you have so-called mutual deterrence, the mad mutual assured destruction, you have an enemy there, a nation state. That's much easier to contend. Because if you will strike me, I will strike you. I know you. You are there. I have the power. But if the enemy is not just a state, but network powers of empire, and enemies are not just nation states, but individuals and groups, 
not only there, but also in here, then it becomes an issue of security. The main metaphor here is not deterrence, but security, security state. So here comes the policing of your own citizen. And immigration now, for example, where was immigration located before in terms of administration? It was called INS, in, uh, right? INS, Immigration Naturalization Service. It was under which department? Uh, Justice, State Department, and Department of Justice. Now, where is it under? Department of Homeland Insecurity, right? Yeah. Because immigration is not a justice issue. Immigration is a security issue, especially after 9-11 also. So if the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom, the fear for our security is the beginning of idolatry. Idolatry is happening. Idolatry in the name of flag, the family, and the Bible, isn't it? Now let me ask you. Oh, wow, I'm so surprised. There's no flag here. That's very rare to find a church without a flag. But if you ask a congregation, which one would they oppose? Removing the American flag or the crucifix? The flag. We'll have lots of trouble. Right? More trouble when you remove the American flag than when you remove the crucifix. Much more so when you remove the offering plate. <laughs> but it tells you how flag, family, and the Bible that has been uh, uh, captured, discourse of these three captured by fundamentalists, by uh, the right-wing Christians. Why? I think we have allowed them to control the discourse about flag, family, and Bible. So we need to reclaim that. When you have religious fundamentalism, what is the first casualty? first casualty is truth. Uh, before any war happens, where does war happen first? In the media. In the media. Media. There is no war without media machinery first. You have to convince the people that this is, there is a weapon of mass destruction somewhere there. That there are people there who are our enemies. I've seen that one in the so-called in the visiting forces agreement in the Philippines. United States was kicked out, not just by the Philippine government or by the people, but also by the natural disaster when Mount Pinatubo erupted and uh, uh, covered uh, Clark Air Force Base and Subic Naval Base. So uh, United States uh, military forces were out for a while. And then later on, it came through visiting forces agreement, and it's all over the Philippines. And before that happened, there was in the media every day, Spratly Islands, China is there, building military platform, and a senator from the United States went there, and yes, there is, there is, uh, Chinese are building military platform in the Spratly Islands, west of the Philippines. And then, the next month, the signing of visiting forces agreement. The day after the visiting forces agreement was signed, there was no more mention 
um, Chinese building platform. And now it's back again because the United States is positioning its forces in the Asia-Pacific region, connect the dots between uh, the sinking of uh, the uh, Korean, South Korean uh, Navy vessel, for example, in South Korea, and the positioning of U.S. forces there, and also the question about the islands, Spratly Islands, and uh, Scarborough Shoal in the Philippines, again, because of oil deposits. There is uh, a confrontation, but it's also a way of preparing the people. So there is no war without media, without information and disinformation. First casualty is truth. The first to be enlisted is God. Right? And God must be on our side because victory is guaranteed. So if we follow this logic, business as usual, we let it happen. We do not respond. We are so busy with our lives. We are so busy with two jobs, three jobs. A lot of people have three jobs even without any health insurance or life insurance. And they're still considered lazy, right? So what happens? Business as usual is catastrophic. Uh, Joanna Macy talks about these three. Uh, business as usual, catastrophic. There will be great unraveling. Uh, unraveling, and of course, uh, we hope for the great turning. The best lack all conviction, while the worst are full of passionate intensity. Surely some revelation is at hand. I hope, I wish, uh, that uh, we uh, have seen this revelation. The question, uh, according to Joanna Macy, is not which of the stories are right. You have class of fundamentalism, it's there. You have class of civilization, it's there. The question is, which one we want to put our energy behind? So to speak about the great turning does not mean that we are forgetting about the great catastrophe or the great unraveling. But where do we put ourselves behind? Where do we put our energy we must choose. We choose what we aim to bring about. And this is the active hope. And here, in the UCC, for example, we as Christians must witness to God's radical karma where fundamentalism has put a period, right? And uh, that's not enough. I know that there are lots of UCCs that emphasizes, uh, emphasize the karma. But that's not enough. Liberal wishy-washy liberalism is not enough. We must have this evangelical zeal with a liberal mind and evangelical passion. That's what I speak about, burning center and porous border. The border must be porous so that it's not the kind of dog that, uh, it's not the kind of burning center that's burning others, but passionate, but porous and open. And it must be proclaimed. Christian must proclaim the comma with the passion of an exclamation point. And we must create this hospitable world, creating creation of welcoming communities and resistance to practices that are inhospitable. And uh, it's hard. It's really hard to 
being open and to continue to be open when we are presented with other stories, when terrorism uh, kills, destroys our communities, uh, destroys uh, the lives of our friends. But uh, for us to continue this hospitable heart, that we will win the war on terror only when we release the terror within. Because the good we secure for ourselves is precarious and uncertain until it is secured for all of us and incorporated into our common life. So let us not just simply talk about this. We need to organize. We need to mobilize. We need to act. We need to walk. We need to be audacious threshold walkers. The road is made by walking. Thank you so much. So, questions? Uh, Does it change things at all? I think so. Uh, even before the Arab Spring, uh, a lot of those uh, people organizing, even in the Philippines, uh, even with the use of cell phone before, uh, they became useful. They were useful in terms of uh, popular uprising and organizing. So in a sense, uh, uh, it's very much useful. But people are inundated bombarded with lots of information that you need to have critical tools really to sort out. For me, the most important one is the critical tools to see, to frame, uh, and ask questions and connect the dots. Because if you don't have this critical framework on how to connect the dots, there are a lot more of trivial and uh, information there that in fact uh, confuses uh, the mind and instead of being more critical. Uh, the media is available, but the most important thing is to develop the critical mind in order to be able to sort out and see what's going on. Let me just mention one time, for example, uh, there was this uh, movie Obsession that was distributed uh, uh, a few months before the election. Uh, of Obama before, and there were lots of uh, footage about uh, uh, Muslims' attempts to uh, control and engage in war on terror. I thought about using it for my classroom, but I decided not to, and someone said, don't use it unless you have enough time to deal with it and to discuss with it. Otherwise, it will not be more informative. In fact, it will reinforce the perceived stereotypes and prejudices of your students. So it's very important to have the critical mind uh, because uh, 
half-truth is more dangerous than straightforward lies. Uh, the one that was projected, that, uh, the, the footage that were included in the document, uh, the, the film, were true. Bombings there, bombings there, bombings there, bombings there with dates and people. But the main issue is not that they were not true. The main issue was how did they frame it? So connecting the dots is the main issue. And if you don't have the critical apparatus, any kind of information will just be feeding the uh, more of the dangerous side. And that same thing happened also for my students when we were in Israel, Palestine, last uh, three weeks ago. Had we not been immersed and very much informed and had a critical engagement with Palestinians uh, from the other side for more than a week, and then we had a conversation with uh, an Israeli Jewish rabbi, human rights, we would not have the critical apparatus to distinguish between what he said and the experience of the people. So I think the most fundamental one is critical thinking. Then you can make use of the media that's there available because they are there. But it also needs creativity. And one thing that frustrates me uh, is that uh, there is one media that is there that should be useful for all people. And a lot of people do not even know about this. Uh, and this is Link TV. If you know Link TV, that is where I get access to the great information that is not available even in public television. So Link TV with Amy Goodman, Link TV with Al Jazeera all over the world, Link TV, Mosaic, Link TV with Chris Hedges, Link TV with uh, Christian Wolf, that uh, when capitalism hits the fan, it's there, it's available on the internet, but a lot of people do not know about that. Too bad. They are not even able to distinguish between BBC and Fox News, or even CNN. So those are things are available, they are useful, but the most important point is the critical apparatus in order that this person will be able to analyze the news and information. I hope you will uh, Google Link TV. That is where I get 90% of my resources for my classes. It has been my savior in the sense of providing me the needed information uh, uh, for my own work in terms of educating lots of people. Other questions? How do we convey to people of goodwill that overconsumption actually affects the life of people around the world, actually, besides whether they live or die? You know, we, uh, media and uh, corporate America always talking about mm -hmm. things that
That's a question about how. Maybe you have more experience about uh, how uh, to do it. Uh, let me just start with more uh, basic ones. Uh, our economy is founded on the basic understanding that uh, we consume in order to make it work and continue uh, in its own pace. And even our desires about all our uh, investments and return is based on that understanding of you consume, you consume, consumer confidence, right? Consumer confidence is based on consumer buying more and more in order to keep the economy running better so that the returns will be good and we'll be happy getting returns from our 401k, IRA, all those investments that we have. I think it needs uh, fundamental questioning of our basic uh, assumptions and desires, uh, and also basic questioning about uh, the foundations of our economy. When economic factors are measured in terms of gross domestic product or gross uh, national uh, product, and which we like to watch growing, but it's not really an index of greater well-being. In fact, uh, having higher gross domestic uh, product may not be equivalent to greater well-being. It could be the worst. If you have an ecological disaster, it, can, it might increase the gross national product because you have to invest more money to contain the ecological disaster. Right? So if you have more uh, criminality, criminality and litigation, it also increases the domestic product. So domestic product could be a worse uh, indicator of uh, economy doing well. So a fundamental understanding in terms of what is really so-called, what is economic activity that, is, that promotes greater well-being, fundamental change, then we start thinking about our own lifestyle. And uh, if I have to follow, uh, to be more practical, perhaps I'll start with uh, people's self-interest. Identify people's self-interest as a way of starting to educate people about that particular need uh, to transform. That consumption is not even good for your own health, for your own well-being, for your own soul, for everything. Uh, and maybe it's a way to sell the idea that uh, consumerism is uh, not good for you in many ways, not just physically, but uh, it's a manifestation of deep uh, insecurity 
And imagine how much freedom do you have, do we have, if we are freed from uh, possession and consumption. Imagine a person who wants to build a vacation house in Florida during winter time or a cabin in the north uh, during summer time here and then cabin in the north but have to borrow to make a loan in order to build that cabin in the north. Then you have to pay your loan. Then you don't have time even to go to your cabin because you have to work hard and hard to pay your loan. So where's the freedom there? Where is the dream there? The dream that one wants to do cannot do it because you are tied to uh, the economic system. And uh, so the dream house, the dream vacation, the dream cabin in the north cannot be used uh, maybe once a year, twice a year, but you work hard and hard in order to pay your loan, in order to have the cabin. But that cabin is not very much useful for your own life because you don't have time, because you are so busy working in order to pay for that cabin. God, God is on our side. God is on our side. Anybody, anybody under 40 uh, would not have been an adult when a lot of these things were happening that are in, that are in the song. Mm-hmm. But it, it, uh, that, that, that triggers a memory. The other reason I didn't use it this morning is because I have like eight verses. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> There's also a saying that nothing is impossible when Nothing is impossible when you. What's the next one? When God is on your side, nothing is impossible. Uh, Everything, in fact, becomes possible. Because God is used to justify a lot of things. Wars now are done. We engage war in the name of peace. So even the so-called noble values are corruptible. And, and when I speak about theology and sin, uh, that's how I understand it. Our greatest failures, the greatest sin, is not our weakness. The greatest sin of us, and yet United States of America, are its so-called virtues. Virtues. Uh, more dangerous. And uh, the greatest virtues are, for example, civilizing. That's the greatest danger. Now, civilized is basically imperializing also. Uh, the quest for uh, many of our, uh, our values are, the, and for me, the sin is not simply what is bad, 
sin is uh, a corruption of the good. Love of country is good. Love of family is good. Love of children is good. Uh, to have money is good. But uh, sin is the corruption of that good. And others would say that sin does not even have a, an identity of its own. Sin is parasitic. It's a parasite. It, it, it corrodes. It, uh, it's a parasite. Uh, it mm, eats up. It, uh, it's dependent on something in order to transform it into something demonic. Yeah, um, it's hard to say that, oh, I have reached my limit uh, because consumerism is like uh, drinking salt water. Uh, and it's even like drinking Coca-Cola with chips, right? <laughs> yeah, you can imagine it. Yeah, it never ends. <laughs> Especially if you have this one whole bag and you go something like that because uh, there's sweet and there's salt and you, you can eat actually more and more and more and not be satisfied because of, of that. So it's like a consumer, it's like horizon. Once you read horizon, it moves, it recedes, it never, never ends. So one way to do that is to find a different form of fulfillment, a certain form of fulfillment in your life. What is it that makes you uh, feel fulfilled? something that cannot be provided by this uh, material, endless material consumption. Because uh, simplicity is not about not having something. Uh, simplicity is not, is not about not having something. Simplicity is about having something and willing to let go also, not being attached to it. hard not to be attached to those things. But there are moments in our lives when we become more and more aware. When we ask uh, profound questions about uh, how would I live my life? Uh, what do I really care about? 
but other things that really matter. How would I want to be remembered? What legacy would I uh, bequeath to my own children and the next generations? Those are uh, limit questions, questions uh, that need to be asked. And when we ask those kinds of questions, we slowly get in touch with ourselves. What is it that really matters to me? even with all the good things that I have done. What do I really care about? It, does not, it would not require a certain kind of tragedy in order for us to ask those basic questions. Even in our best health, we should ask those kinds of questions except that when we get older and older, we ask those kinds of questions all the more. When I was 35, I did not ask those kinds of questions. When I turned a little bit maturer, I began to ask more of those kinds of questions. Uh, even a decade before retirement, I'm already asking questions about what have I done with all these things that I do? I'm so busy, crazy busy, but does it really matter? Right? Where would I want to make a difference in terms of my own limited life? What would really count for me? Have you asked those kinds of questions? We ask those kinds of questions when something more profound comes to our lives, right? And then we realize that those things that we value after so many years, after all, are not worth it. When something more comes to our lives and even destroys the things that we have worked for so many years. I hate to think about those possibilities in our lives, but uh, we don't have to wait for those kinds of big moments in order to think about profound questions. Living in the flesh, that's what we are. That's why we have to take care of our flesh, uh, because uh, uh, not only for ourselves, but also for the people we love and care. Uh, that's why part of spiritual practices is uh, taking care of our bodies. Uh, that's part of the spiritual practices that I, uh, we teach with our students different practices like uh, lecture divina, um, uh, hospitality, but the other assignment is uh, a question about uh, did you spend time taking care about yourself? 
Did you do something to nourish yourself today? Did you give yourself a good massage or whatever to, because that's part of caring. Uh, because if we do not know how to care for ourselves, how can I expect you, how can we expect others to care for others when we do violence to ourselves? But not only for ourselves, we do that because we have families who are dependent on us. And it's difficult to be too much of a burden for people who are also busy with their own lives. So we take care of ourselves, not only for ourselves, but we take care of ourselves for the sake of people who will be left behind in that sense. Then another practice that I teach my students is uh, write your own eulogy. That's very scary, right? Never thought about writing my own eulogy. I was scared to do it. But I thought it's a healthy exercise. Why should I be scared of writing my own eulogy? What can I say to myself now that I'm still alive? <laughs> and to think that someday I will not be here. So, if you can start thinking about that, I think you are asking profound questions about how you live now, when you can write your own eulogy. Earlier today, uh, you started the sermon with this funny story about this guy who was uh, sitting in his car, yeah. trying to go from point A to point B, and mm -hmm. he's lost, and mm -hmm. asked someone, where am I? And mm -hmm. this person responds, and you're sitting in your car. Yeah. And then he responded saying, are you a theologian? He said, I will not disclose your question, and it sounds uh, profound, but it's You, um, I don't want to lose my job, so I don't want to simplify theology. But uh, after so many <laughs> decades of theologizing, all these theologies that you can imagine, <laughs> and I said, well, all these books and years and years of writing, maybe there are only four questions, actually. And maybe it's an oversimplification, but something can be simple and yet profound because simple is not simplistic simple is uh, can be profound and four questions that i ask is who are we all theologists ask that who are we who am i the second question is what is our plight then the third question is what do we hope for and the fourth and final question is, how shall we get there? Those are four questions that basically a way to popularize uh, theology. Who are we is answered by all those myths and stories about creation. There is no single um, community in the world that
that has no creation story. It's part of creation narrative. God created, you know, who, are, who am I? I'm created in the image of God. What is my plight? We talk about sin and human and society. What do we hope for? That's a question of, we call in theology, eschatology, the doctrine of the last things. Basically, it's not about the last things. It's about the question of hope in the face of theodicy, in the face of suffering. That's why we have questions. The birthplace of eschatology, the doctrine of the last thing, is theodicy. Where is God's justice? Where is the divine justice in the midst of my suffering? And so you have the birth of eschatology, the doctrine of the last things. What do we hope for? But it's not the end. The question is, uh, how shall we get there? How shall we uh, walk the talk? How shall we live our lives? And that's the question about the church, discipleship, about ethics. You have the four questions encompassing the whole doctrine from beginning to end. They're very profound, simple questions that human beings ask. It doesn't matter if you're a Christian or a Buddhist or a, a Muslim. So those kinds of discourses are not esoteric only for intellectual people. You can make it that way, but it can be very, very simple and yet very, very profound. So this is one example of how we can walk in response to a certain way of thinking and dwelling in the world and our challenge uh, as uh, Christians. Uh, because there is this class of fundamentalism, there is this class of civilizations, there is this war between jihad and Mac world or another or different forms of conflict, they are real. There is this great unraveling, but the question is, where do we put our energy? Uh, where do we put, give our lives? Especially that the democratic space is shrinking, terrorism narrows the uh, hospitable space, because if your child is a victim of terrorism, indiscriminate bombing, for example, or victim of a drone bombing, even if you are liberal, what will happen? You will also, it's very hard to maintain your liberalism when a member of your family is killed. So every person who is liberal, who is open-minded, and whose son and daughter and family members are killed, you are uh, narrowing that space of the so-called creative space where people can be more generous. And if we don't act, we let this thing happen, then what kind of world are we going to expect? Indeed, a class of fundamentalism. So where are the, so where are the progressive Christians? Where are the open-minded, generous, hospitable Christians? And uh, almost always, if you are a conservative or fundamentalist, it does not necessarily mean that you are the majority. It could be that you're on, there are only few in terms of number. The, react, the, the group that reacts, there could only be few. And yet, they speak loud. 
they have to, because they are passionate and they are on the field. So, the, so uh, the, they react and, uh, and they get the media attention. But where is the mainstream? So what we hear is not the mainstream, and what we hear is not the more progressive voices, but the few loud voices that are more conservative in terms of the, the orientation. I think we have allowed that to happen in our society, so time for us to wake up and to get organized and to do our part. Um, there's lots of advocacy work that needs to be done. Uh, the primary work, uh, the primary issue is not sympathy, because when we speak of sympathy, we are thinking as if uh, the problem is there that needs our sympathy. The most important ministry that we can do, number one, is that uh, the issue, the main issue is not there. The main issue is here in the U.S., United States is the greatest impediment to many conflicts in the world, including Israel-Palestine. It's the greatest impediment. But it can also be the greatest uh, contributor to peace if it only acts and if it has the will to do so. So the primary work is here, and secondary work is support of people in other parts of the world. But the main task of the church, the U.S. church, is here. Because there are foreign instructors. It's not only that Israel-Palestine is occupied. Washington, D.C., Capitol Hill is occupied. It's occupied by big lobbyist group. That's the main work here that needs to be done. The other one is support there. But the main support should come through work in the U.S. mainland. Okay, thanks a lot for your uh, engagement. <laughs>